to pick up the microphone. Okay. The scripture of the day is John 14, 1 to 7. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going? Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know that way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. All right, good morning. Good to see everybody. Uh, my name is David McLeod. I get a chance to share with you today um, out of this. So Susanna, thank you so much for reading. I appreciate that very much. Um, I saw Max uh, as I was coming in today, and I, I said to Max, I said, Max, how are you doing? And he did not exchange any words. He just had this massive smile. So I, I was pretty excited about the Marlins win last night, too. Um, but uh, no, but congratulations to Kyra and to Max. That was a great wedding. Um, and uh, congratulations to you both. Thank you, Max, so much. Um, it's good to see you today. I, um, I don't know what shows you get into, but um, I have this, uh, like, kind of a healthy, semi-healthy, I guess, obsession with um, a show called Forensic Files. All right, if any of you have ever watched those. I, I get into those, and I get a little bit, uh, it's the only time I really ever get super into a binge moment of TV, but I love these shows, and if you've ever watched it, it's on headline news, and uh, there's a couple of variations of it, but what happens in this show is there's a crime that takes place, and, um, and up front, there's, there's really nobody um, that becomes a, a suspect or, or is convicted, accused of the crime, but it sort of goes on and on and on. And the part that I've come so interested, besides the science aspect of this show, is you meet these investigators that just don't give up. I mean, here's a case that, that maybe has gone 20, 30, 40 years, and somehow, even if when they're retired, they keep working at it. And I was watching that this week, and I was thinking about sort of connecting a little bit of that type of passion and commitment and digging, and um, I, I guess we could really say that that obsession with them solving a crime, bringing justice um, to, to someone who deserves it, uh, bringing some type of closure uh, to a family. Um, I wanted to sort of take that same passion and take it as we look at scripture today. Because we look at a passage, and when Susanna was reading, uh, if you've been at church or you have any connection to to like a Bible study or anything, you've, you've probably heard these verses before. But today what I wanted us to do is kind of do a renewed digging, a, new, a renewed focus on these verses and really see what God brings out of this. Um, it's an incredible passage, and if we look at it as an investigator would, and we start to look at the words that are said, 
and written here for us, I think you'll come away with something profound and helpful. Um, I look at this and first you have to set up what's going on here in this situation. All right, you are at a very interesting time in scripture. It's, it's we're, the timeline is this. We're extremely close to the cross. If you, if you think about the ticking clock at this point, we're now within about 24 hours of the cross, okay? So that's where we're at in the gospel story. And here Jesus is with his disciples and they're at this Passover meal. And the meal, there was all these different parts to it and, and probably the disciples go in with some sense of elation and excitement and um, there's a lot of celebratory aspects to this meal. But things quickly change. And you see the disciples and, and several major things come up before this passage that, I, that Susanna read today and that we're going to look at. Several things happen that are really important, I believe, for you to, to get to really getting down and digging into this passage. The first is this. They have a bunch of different revelations from Jesus of things that were not good. The first they find out is this. That there was somebody inside of that close-knit group that was going to betray Jesus. This is, they, they, when they heard this, this had to be distressing. Another thing that they learn that Jesus tells them is that he's going to die. All right? This is another thing of distress. Which leads to another thing is that they're about ready to be left alone. Which is another element of distress. And you start to look at what was supposed to be an exciting and, and, and celebratory time. All of a sudden takes on a completely different idea and uh, revelation for them. That I think in many ways was highly distressing to them as a group of people. I want us to think about this. There's something I learned in um, when I was getting my degree in psychology called a SUDS score. A SUDS score is subjective units of distress. And the way that you come up with this score is when you're talking with a client, you're kind of learning about the things that that person has been traumatized with. What has happened in their life, whether it's internal or external, what are the things that have happened and different things get different scores. Loss of a loved one or is like really high up on that list. That would have the, the largest number figure and other things, uh, you know, some type of abuse, all these kinds of things. You start sort of adding up those scores and you're working with the client. And as that score goes up, you realize more and more what the individual has gone through. I look at this and sort of in the light of sort of being a, a, the counseling side of me and I, I was sort of figuring out the score for the disciples. Every bit of revelation that they get, you see that the score goes higher. They're going to be alone. That's not what they wanted, all right? That's going to add to the score, all right? Jesus is going to die. The guy that we've been following all this time, we left our, okay, score goes up. Um, wait, wait, somebody in our group is going to like betray him? Score go I mean, All of these things start to happen, and they have no idea what the future holds. They have no idea. And it brought me to really those first couple of verses that Susanna read to us today. They start off with a troubled heart, and Jesus addresses that. Right? He says, don't have a troubled heart, and he gives them reasons. And I think the timing is 
clearly very interesting. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, and he's worried about their troubled hearts. And I want us to look at today, and Tatiana gave me a great title for this. It's Jesus' answer to the troubled heart. And I want us to think about that today, because as followers of Jesus, there is trouble that comes into our life. And if you look at the life of Jesus, he never promises us an easy route, ever. All right, anybody that tells you that it's going to be easy and prosperity and all of these kinds of things, I, they're reading something different. There's a lot of trouble that happens, and Jesus addresses it here. And what I want us to do is dig deeply, investigate what he says here, because I think change is so difficult for us to accept. And you see it with the disciples. Huge change was on the horizon for them. And they automatically, you can feel the distress in them. And I think it's something that's so universal for us is we want comfort. We, we want things to stay the same. When we get into a good place, let's, let's protect that as much as possible. But life brings change and challenge and difficulty. And today what I want us to do as, as Jesus works with his disciples, he works with you in the same way. I want you to see the way that he addresses these things. I want you to see the way that he looks at these and he tells them, don't have a troubled heart. I want you to see what he says to them as a foundation for them to understand you don't need to have a troubled heart. I look at Thomas right away, and Thomas is such an interesting character, right? The first thing he says is, and, and, and sometimes people call him Doubting Thomas, all right? Thomases are really good, but like Thomas here is asking a question. Now, number one, you see the freedom that he felt to ask questions, all right? So if you ever wonder if you can ask Jesus a question or you can ask God a question, it appears it's totally fine, all right? Thomas does that for us. But Thomas asks a question. So what I want to do is go back to what Susanna read. I want us to investigate. I want us to dig into it just a little bit. And what I want us to see is how Jesus has an answer to this troubled heart. Verse 1, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so... I would have told you that I was, why would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Now, this to me is the distress and difficulty and challenge and the change that Thomas is already feeling. So it prompts, that emotion prompts the question, Lord, how are we going to go where you are going? We don't know the way to get there. And what Thomas is looking for is what I think a lot of us look for. He wants direction. He wants to know a map. He wants to know, okay, if that's where you're going, tell us how to get there. And I want you to see that Jesus gives three things. It's relatively, for a lot of us, it is relatively, uh, I think, on our mind that we know these things. I want you to look at it because this is Jesus' answer to a troubled heart. He says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, I want to say, and I want to propose to you today, that he gives you three things that you really need here. 
He knows us. He cares about us. He loves us as people. And here he gives three things that I think are the answer to the troubled heart. And maybe today you came in with a troubled heart. Maybe you're struggling with something. Maybe change and life has hit you in a way that you never expected, wanted, desired, or dreamt of. I want you to look at this today and see this is how Jesus answered the troubled hearts of his disciples. And we as followers and believers, as as Christians, this I think has huge application to us. But let's dig for just a second. The first two words that Jesus says to Thomas answering the question may seem like not a big deal to us. But he says these two words, I am. Now stop for just a second. This is hugely important. This is hugely important because Jesus uses the words I am, which is a shoot back all the way. And the disciples would have known this. It goes all the way to Exodus chapter 3. And in Exodus chapter 3, there's a scene that plays out where there's Moses. And God has uh, had him out in the wilderness because he had done something he shouldn't have done. He's out there in the wilderness and he's, he's really searching, he's seeking. And there's a burning bush. And the bush is not burning like any normal bush would. It's a bush that burns, but it's not consumed. And there God tells Moses to go to Egypt and and go get the people. And Moses says, well, like he's nervous. He's confused. It's, it's, It's not what he was expecting at all. And God tells him in that moment when he asks, well, who am I supposed to say sent me? And he says, I am sent you. And see, I am becomes a very important words, a group of words for us when we read scripture. That's the investigative part because Jesus there is saying, I am God. He is relating himself back to that very time and he's saying, I am. In fact, in John, seven different times, Jesus says, I am, and uses that specific phrase seven different times. This is the sixth one. And the disciples would have known each time he is not saying just arbitrarily I am. He is making a statement about who he is, his deity, that he is fully God and fully man. And they are in the presence of God himself in those moments. So all of a sudden you're on holy ground in a sense when he says this is who I am. It's a beautiful thing and I think it misses on us a little bit. The incendiary aspect of that statement. In John chapter 8, Jesus says that to a group of people. And as soon as he says it, they know exactly what he's saying. They get furious and they pick up rocks to start throwing at him. They want to stone him to death. Because they say he's blaspheming God by using those words. It's huge that he says it the way that he does. And he says three things. I am the way the truth, and the life. No man comes, no person comes to the Father except through me. Now, I love how emphatic, direct, how right to the point Jesus is in this moment. There are some times where, um, and maybe you can uh, relate to me in this, I am definitely not the smartest person in the room, unless I'm the only person in the room maybe, but There's sometimes when Jesus talks in scripture and I get really stuck. 
I'm just being honest with you. It's almost sometimes like he speaks a little bit in code and you have to really like tear it apart and try to figure out what is being said. And sometimes I'll be honest, I've left in a little bit of frustration to try to come back later with a little bit fresh, maybe another little bit of coffee or something and try to dig into it a little bit more. You don't have to worry about that this, in this passage. He tells you right up front with that designation of I am, he's telling you exactly who he is. And the answer to the troubled heart isn't a map, it isn't a direction, it's a person. When Thomas asks the question, Jesus doesn't give him three ways to a better life or, or, or some, a really good hallmark moment for him. Jesus says, this is where you find it. And he says, I am. These three things I, hit, I think hit three very important areas for the troubled heart. The first is this. He says, I am the way. It's the direction. It's the destination. Is him. Now, when Jesus says, I am the way, he doesn't say a way. Again, we got to look at these words. They're really important the way this is written. It says, I am the way. Now, it's a good thing that Jesus says that and not me because Jesus is saying there's only one way. There's not all these other routes. Now, how could this be a heart of compassion for the troubled heart that Jesus tells his disciples, I am the only way? How could that possibly be? And I think we have something in us as people. We need the safety. We need the foundation. We need to know where we are going. And he is saying here unequivocally, I am the only way to do that. And those disciples would leave that dinner. They would leave those couple of, 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 of those horrible events that would be happening. They would go out into the world. And you know what? I think they clung to these words when they hit those moments when life was desperate, it was difficult and challenging. Because they knew this. They had faith and trust in him. They had seen what he had done and they knew that he was the way. They had a message that wasn't their message. It's not my message. It was his message to give. And I think culturally, it's so difficult sometimes when we come to these passages. And that's why I say it's so amazing that it's God that gave this message because it's his it's his that said, he says this. And as offensive as some people would say that this is, it's Jesus saying it. This is what he says is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And I see this. It gives direction and it gives foundation to the troubled heart that not only does he love and care for us, but he is the way. There is safety. There is hope. There is security that is found in him and in him alone. And as much as we seek throughout our lives to find that, that place of being and, and, and find a place of safety and security, he answers it here. The answer that he gives to the troubled heart is, he gives direction. He gives a destination himself. The second thing that he says if he gives direction, the second thing that I want us to see is he's the way and then truth. We have something in us that deeply desires the truth, okay? We desire it, we want it. When you've been lied to, it's an affront on you, okay? I, there's a great book called Lie Spotting. If you ever get a chance to read it, it was a TED talk. And it, it just basically, it says like, a lie is an affront to you as a person, okay? 
we have something embedded deeply inside of us that we desire truth. But you know what? In a day and age right now where culture is basically truth is whatever, Jesus is saying that is not true. There is truth. And he says, again, I am the truth, not a truth. Again, he says, the truth. And there's a boldness that he says that here. But if he put in our hearts and in our minds and our souls and our, our, our psyches that we desire what is good and pure and honest and true, we desire truth, he's saying this is where you find it. This is where it comes from. So an answer to the troubled heart is knowing what is right and what is true. And he's setting up with his disciples this beautiful picture here of their foundation and how they've been invited into this. Finally, the third thing is, he says, I am life, okay? You know, you, you think for just a second how often we want the good life, right? Okay, there's probably a few movies with that title and books and probably if you jump into a bookstore or Amazon, you find a lot of stuff about how to live, right? We are interested, preoccupied, and currently in the present, um, we, we're very interested in life. And here Jesus says something. Again, it's the life, okay? It's not a life, it's the life. And a lot of people look at this passage and say, well, he's referring there to eternal life, and he is. But I think it's even more than that. He's also dealing with us now. And it's the relationship that we are called into as believers, a relationship with him. He doesn't choose to deal with us as like, some kind of, of far away, unimportant, ancillary accessory. But what he does is he calls us into life, into his own family, and invites us in. There's a great quote by Eugene Peterson that I think encapsulates this idea of life. I'd like to read it for you. The way of Jesus cannot be imposed or mapped. It requires an active participation in following Jesus as he leads us through sometimes strange and unfamiliar territory, in circumstances that become clear only in the hesitations and the questionings, in the pauses and reflections where we engage prayerfully conversations with one another and with him. So I want to assert to you this. The answer to the troubled heart of a believer it's a strong foundation and direction. It's absolutely justice. It for us is truth and a solid foundation. But I also see here it's life. It's very in the present. And yes, there's a promise of eternity that we see when Jesus resurrects. It gives us hope and eternal security because of what he's done. But here I dig into that the disciples were going to need something to sustain them throughout the wanderings and the difficulty and the questioning and the hesitations and the doubt, all of these things, they were going to need that. And when Jesus here relates to them and gives them these three things that really a lot of times we relegate only to salvation, but I think this gives us hope. It gives us security and confidence in what he's provided. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's propelling them forward. He's propelling them forward with all of the things that they need in their humanity to deal with all of the difficulties that will happen in their life as they go forward. 
Remember, this was a group of people that not too long ago were fishing and doing other things as jobs. And all of a sudden, they're about ready to have their lives upended in a way they can never imagine. See, the answers that Jesus gives, I think, are so beautiful. But I want to finish with this. And, and this is kind of an unusual thing. But if you really want to be that investigator and detective and really dig into these things, I want you to see that there is something here that's hidden under the surface to us, but would have been very, very common in understanding at that time. And it's a wedding proposal. See, you look at this and you read the verses that Susanna read today. You don't see anything about a wedding. And just before I get to talking about what the proposal is here, I want to tell you, my absolute favorite part of my job is doing weddings. I love it. In fact, I have volunteered to do more weddings than I think anybody else, all right? Like, if there's a wedding to be done and they don't have somebody, I'm like, I'm in. I'm doing it, all right? I love it. I I, um, you know, my wife has no idea. I'm just waiting for the day she wakes up. I, I, am so, I love my wife. She's so cool. Over uh, 20 years ago, got married right here, which was totally crazy because I didn't even go to church back then. Um, but I got married in this broom and that kind of led to, you know, marriage has been good to me. It's challenging, of course. All right, she has to live with me. But it's, there's, there's a lot of great stuff. And I love doing weddings. And I did a wedding a few weeks ago. Um, for uh, Oleg Otten and Christina, and they got, they got married, and it was in a, a living room, and it was so much fun. And when I saw the two of them looking at each other, I mean, honestly, there's only a few times you see a smile like that. You know, even I can see it, all right? And it was so amazingly special, the intimacy and the friendship and all of the things that all of us desire so much for Weddings mean something special. Max and Kyra, I got to go to their wedding. It was amazing. There's a lot of special things. There's also huge challenges and hardships that can come when you're that intimately close to someone else. But I want you to see that this passage is actually a wedding proposal. Let me show you where. It says in verse 2, it says, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. That is part of a wedding proposal. If you go all the way back, Old Testament, and you kind of understand the, the, the Jewish, sort of this ancient Jewish systems of how a marriage would take place, this is part of it, okay? And this is the way that it would work. Now, you can read ad nauseum how this works. There's a lot of information. Those of you that already know this, I'm gonna shorten it up a lot, all right? Because during first service, a couple of people gave me, well, you forgot this point, you forgot. I know, I know, I know. I'm, I'm trying to get, I don't have uh, two days here, okay? But this is part of a wedding proposal. And what would happen was this. Um, a, 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 a boy's family would go out and they, they were really in charge of sort of selecting a spouse. And they would go out and they might meet with another family and um, that, that was a good perspective uh, spouse. And then the negotiation would happen. So aren't we kind of glad we don't do it this way, right? But a negotiation would happen. And in the negotiation, a price would be paid, which is very relevant to the gospel and as we talk about it. But a price would be paid. And there was essentially a covenant or a contract that would be written up. 
And it would be proposed to this family after a long negotiation and it would be proposed to the possible bride. A glass of wine would be set there for her and if she agreed and, and, and really saw this being a possibility for her, if she drank it, that was equivalent to saying yes. Then the part of this passage comes in. The future groom, essentially they were getting engaged at that point once she drank the cup of wine. Then the groom would then leave and he would go back to his father's house and what he would do is he would start preparing, okay? He would start preparing a space for them and he would start building onto his father's uh, whatever their dwelling space looked like. He would start doing that and also during that time he's really securing their future, okay? He's preparing for the wedding day. So when Jesus says here, I go to prepare a place for you, they're like, wow, he's committed so much to loving us. He takes everything good about a marriage and he's saying, this is my commitment and love to you. See, he'd go to the cross and he'd give his life there. The resurrection happens and later on the ascension. And what he's telling the disciples is, I'm going to prepare a place for you for my dearly beloved. And he chooses a wedding, a marriage, to be significant and signify his relationship with us. That's how much he loves us. He doesn't put it in another context or another illustration or an example. See, the answer here to a troubled heart is, he loves you that much. And he goes and he prepares a place for you. The old King James used to say mansions instead of rooms. It's really not a good understanding of this. It wasn't well translated mansions because mansions also kind of makes you feel like you're far away. All right, you've got your own spot. All right, you're in a subdivision, I guess. All right, and that's not at all what this is saying. It's saying, you're going to be with me. You're going to live with me. And if you have that place that you call home and that's that place of security and safety and you shut the door in your house, you know, you know, get comfortable. Jesus is saying, you're going to come live in that intimate relationship with me. We are going to be together. I'm not putting you in some other house. I'm putting you in my house. We will be together. This is the answer to the troubled heart. Is that your Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who gives his life for you, says, you're going to live at my house. You're going to be with me. And that is what heaven is. Heaven isn't all of these self-serving things that maybe people say it is. Heaven is a relationship with our creator who has given us life through himself. He cares about your troubled heart. And he tells you today, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father but through him. And he goes and he prepares a place for his dearly beloved. And today we wait as that is prepared and God's timing takes place. But you have a heavenly father who cares about you that much. And I want to encourage you with this today. The road that you take in your life will be full of turns and it'll be changes and it'll be things you don't expect and things that you never wanted. And there'll be times where you're frustrated and you have questions. We see from Thomas, you can ask those questions. You're going to have hesitations. You're going to have moments of doubt. You're going to feel like you were left. But I direct us back to this. There's a direction that's given to us. 
There's an honest, there's truth that is given to us. There is here life that has been given to us and promised to us. And he does it all in the context of a relationship that is intimate and close and really shows just how much he loves you. I hope today you take this with you, that you think a little bit about following Jesus is sometimes very difficult, but he does give us hope. He gives us encouragement. And a God that loves you that much to be that detailed that he even addresses the little troubled hearts and the moments of us in the deepest, most intimate uh, nooks and crannies of who we are, this is even more proof of just how much he loves and cares for you. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we're grateful for your mercy and grace. Father, today may we connect a little bit deeper with what it means to be yours, that you love us, that when you call us your, your, your family, that when we identify so easily as you have given words to us of sons and daughters of yours, Father, help us to relish that, to bask in the goodness of what it means to be yours. Father, that we live by grace, not by works, that we have a hope, not centered in ourselves, but centered in the person and work of you. Father, we love you, and Father, we say together those beautiful words, you are the way, the truth, and the life, and we're thankful for you. Father, we love you, and we're grateful, and we lift up our hearts together. It's a community that's brought together because of your sacrifice. We ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.